Amen. Thank you for your good singing in that last stanza. We reflect on the words that every tribe and tongue that believes in Jesus Christ as Savior will sing in the kingdom around the throne. Worthy is the Lamb because He was slain. And it's in today's passage we read about that King going to the cross, the one who died for us and what it is that He died in our place And therein lies the reality that He is indeed the true King, the worthy King, because He is the Lamb who was slain for His subjects. So if you'll open again to John chapter 19 with me, we'll consider this incredible scene as the true King takes our place and goes to the cross and dies for sinners. We open the scene there in John chapter 19 and... I want to gain a little context because this is the second half of his Roman trial. And you may remember last week as we studied the end of chapter 18 that there was this sort of inside-outside transition. Do you remember? The chief priests approach Pilate's headquarters, the praetorium. And there they stayed outside because they didn't want to be defiled. And so Pilate left the inner rooms of the praetorium and walked out to the chief priests and began his discussion with them. And the rest of the scenes begin this inside-outside transition as Pilate bounces back and forth between Jesus on the inside of the praetorium and the chief priests on the outside. And it's this trial where we're all kind of waiting to see what will the verdict be about the Lord Jesus? What will they say of him? What will Pilate determine regarding his life and his death? This inside-outside transition back and forth and the debates between the chief priests and Pilate and Jesus sets up for us this power struggle. Who's really in charge here is sort of the question that is to be on our minds as we read this plot unfold. Who's really calling the shots? Is it Pilate? Is it the chief priests? Or is it God sending His Son to the cross to die for sinners? These are the questions in our minds. Who really has the power in this courtroom? As we watch these events unfold, I want you to see how the irony that drips from each of these scenes begins to reveal to us who the real king is. Who's the one with the real power as he goes to the cross And in every scene, we watch as Jesus takes what is not His, shame, reproach, condemnation, false charges. He takes what is not His and He bears it with strength for the sake of the very ones who charge Him. And so as we work through this text, I want to lead it all to this, that you and I need to worship the true King, Jesus, because He died for our sins. He took our place. We'll see this exchange of robes, exchange of places, as Jesus, the real King, steps in our place and dies for our sins. So work through the text with me as we see in each scene how this begins to unfold. Now the opening phrase of chapter 19 ought to surprise us as we remember how chapter 18 closed. At the end of chapter 18, Pilate sort of wanted to release Jesus. And in fact, he offers them a solution. He says, well, why don't I release him to you? I have a custom of releasing someone around Passover time. So why don't I just release Jesus? And the crowds cry out, no, release Barabbas. And so that surprises us. But then we read the opening of chapter 19 and it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now the scourging was uh, this Roman beating. There were actually three levels to it. The highest level, the worst level, was the one that often preceded crucifixion. Because they would bring the person to the brink of death before hanging them up on the cross to add to their shame, pain, and embarrassment. And so this scourging was intense. Why all of a sudden does Pilate jump to this scourging? I think in Pilate's mind, he hopes that by weakening this Jesus, by showing that he's 
putting him through some pain and some difficulty, maybe then the Jews would allow him to just release him and not send him to the cross. And so Pilate scourges Jesus without any fault on Jesus' part. Now, this is surprising, but as we look back at history, this was often true of Roman leaders. They were known to brutally flog even innocent men simply because they disrupted the public order. And so, too, this is what's happening. There's this uprising among the Jews. And so, to keep the peace, Pilate hopes he can just have Jesus beaten and returned, and then this will calm things down. This scourging involved often stripping a person down, tying them to a post, beating them with what were called flagella, which were leather whips with iron or bone or spikes at the end used to shred the flesh of the victim. Unlike Jewish whippings, there were no limit to Roman whippings. It was purely in the judgment of the one who oversaw the scourging to decide when they were close to death and to stop just before that point. And so the intent was to shame and to humiliate, to inflict severe pain and to bring the person to the brink of death. However, John, our author, He doesn't dwell on the scourging. Notice where the details come. He describes what Jesus is wearing in verse 2. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Rather than focusing on the scourging and the physical pain, John zooms in on the details of what Jesus is wearing. He's wearing a man-made crown, a crown specifically made of thorns. And John even points out that they twisted it so that our minds can imagine these Roman guards making this crown. This is a homemade crown, not a real one, a fake one. And it's made of thorns, and we can imagine them pressing it down on Jesus' head as the thorns cut into his skin. And then after the whipping, they place this robe around him. Again, a robe that one of them probably was already wearing or that they had just found sort of lying around. This is just using what they can, what they have, what's around them, and they put it on Jesus. The question is, why does John point this out? I think he's painting for us what would be a coronation scene. When a king is usually crowned and dressed in his finest robes, what Jesus gets is this man-made fake crown of thorns and a robe they had lying around over his wounded flesh. Jesus is wearing mock king's clothing at this mock coronation. This is an important exchange. You see, Jesus here is actually the true king, but he's wearing the crown that humans made. He's actually the true king, but he's wearing the clothing that the humans came up with as they mock him. He's wearing their robe. As they mock him, they mock the reflection of their own making. They mock their own fake rules. They're the ones with no honor, and Jesus wears their shame for them. They offer him mock worship. This was a common tribute to Caesar. Hail Caesar, they would say. And often when they said it, they would bow down to one knee. Hail Caesar, they would call out. And they'd even sometimes grab his hand and kiss it as a kiss of loyalty. The other Gospels tell us that indeed as they called out, Hail, King of the Jews, to Jesus, they indeed bowed the knee before him. But instead of a kiss of loyalty, it was a slap of mockery onto the true king. They offer their fake worship to the one who's truly king. Those who struck him on that day will indeed one day bow the knee to King Jesus, as we all will. In trying to honor themselves and shame Jesus, they don't realize that they're mocking their own fake crowns and phony robes before the one who is the true king. The one with true honor, as Jesus already pointed out in John 5, 23, he should be honored just as the Father is honored. But now here he's wearing their shame 
on their behalf. And so this is what we see first about King Jesus on His way to the cross. Number one, though He has true honor, He bears our shame. Their efforts to promote themselves, to show their strength and their power, show that they're false kings in the first place. And yet He takes their crown. He takes their robes. Though He has true honor, He bears our shame. I remember uh, somebody doing this for me, in a sense. In one of my first jobs, we were in an all-staff meeting, and the president of the organization was sort of reviewing some of the things that had been taking place in the organization, and what things do we need to improve, what adjustments do we need to make. And he came to our department, and I was a, uh, just an entry-level staff member in that department, and he pointed something out. You know, we noticed over the last month that this went wrong, and why is that? That should be changed. Well, the thing he pointed out happened to be one of my responsibilities, you know, and so then I'm kind of sinking into my chair and the, the, the face is becoming flush, you know. Um, yeah, why did that happen? That's really weird, you know, as I'm sinking down. And I remember at that moment, my department chair, the head of that department, my supervisor, stepped forward and said, that's our department, which I lead. We'll make sure it's fixed next month. Oh, thank you, Right? The supervisor stepped forward and took the shame in my place. Was it my fault? Absolutely it was. But he took the blame for me. So Jesus, the true king, steps in and takes the shame that we have made for ourselves, and he wears it in our place. You ask, well, how is it that we make ourselves mock kings? What do you mean with this fake crown and fake robes? How are these ours in the first place? Well, you see, we mock Jesus every time we promote ourselves and our desires. We act selfishly. When we serve ourselves, we make ourselves kings, and we join those who mock Jesus. For instance... And when we treat our spouse poorly or speak to them harshly in order to get our way, we mock Jesus. We say to Jesus, I know you want me to treat my spouse kindly and speak graciously, but I know better. I'm going to get what I want, and I don't care how you want me to go about it. We mock King Jesus. We try to dress ourselves up in our own righteousness we act like Jesus stated in John 5:44 when he said to the Pharisees, "How can you believe who receive honor from one another rather than living for God's honor?" We do this too. We we do things to be seen by men, to get praise and accolades from people around us, settling for honor which is not truly honor, honor that's not from God when there's one for whom we should be living. And every time we do this, we make ourselves kings of our own little realms. We twist ourselves fake crowns and put on our shoulders our fake robes and try to say, look, I'm king of my world, not Jesus. But in so doing, we make the very crown and robes that he had to wear on the way to the cross because we mock his authority. In trying to honor ourselves, we shame Him. This is what the guards are doing, what the chief priests are doing, what Pilate is doing, and it's what each of us does as well when we mock His authority. When we dress ourselves in kingly robes and judge others around us, trying to make ourselves judge instead of Him. Jesus shows us a different way. The one with true inherent honor honors us by taking our shame. And so in response, we worship the true King. Our next scene comes in verse 4. Pilate has scourged Jesus, and the other Gospels tell us that this actually took place in the praetorium, and the guards were called there. And it may have been that the chief priest could have seen it from there. We don't know for sure. But now in verse 4, Pilate steps back outside. 
He goes out to the chief priests, and Jesus has not yet been revealed. So tracking along with that coronation ceremony, you've had the king prepared in the inner rooms. And now in this next scene, we come to the presentation of the king. Pilate leads the way. He's ready to make the introduction. And so in verse 4, he comes out and he tells the chief priest, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you. And what's he tell them? I find no fault in him. In this scene, I want you to notice how many times Jesus is declared as innocent. (laughs) It's no fault. Though Pilate says to them here already at the beginning, I want you to know I find no fault in him. I'm bringing him out to present him to you. And so in verse 5, Jesus comes out now to be presented to the chief priests. And when they see him, Pilate makes the introduction. He says, behold the man. Now wait a second. Isn't this the presentation of the king? Why would Pilate not say, behold the king? Well, remember Pilate's intent. Pilate's trying to weaken Jesus before them. He's trying to show them that he's no real threat. Pilate, indeed, just wants to let him go. The other Gospels reveal that that's the reason he scourged him, so that hopefully they would just accept his release of Jesus. And so even here, he's not going to call him king, he calls him man. So Jesus is presented to them, and he's in these mock crown and robe, and he's weakened by the scourging. And Pilate says, behold, the man. So that maybe the chief priest would accept his release. But instead, in verse 6, we read that they see him and there's no compassion, there's no mercy. They just say, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate's kind of exacerbated by their murderous demands, says back to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Pilate, from his judgment, recognizes that Jesus is innocent. So again, he just wants him off of his hands. Fine, you take him and put him to death if that's what you want to do. I find no fault. But then... The Jews answer him. They realize that they're not going to get what they want by going about things this way. So for the first time, now the chief priests reveal their charge against Jesus. Remember, so far, all they had said is he's just an evildoer. That's all their claim was. Well, we wouldn't have have brought him to you if he wasn't an evildoer. He's an evildoer. But now they bring a charge. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Their charge is blasphemy. Their wording is interesting. Jesus made himself to be the son of God. Nope, he is the son of God. And for one who claimed to be God, the result is blasphemy from their perspective. And so, indeed, in the Old Testament law, the punishment for that was death. And so they're calling for his death. He's committed blasphemy. They bring in uh, this false charge. Uh, From their perspective, it's true, but we know it's false in order that Pilate might agree with them and crucify Jesus. They don't have any compassion. They just bring this false charge. He made himself the Son of God. What we see in this scene between Pilate and the chief priests, twice Jesus is recognized as being without fault. Pilate calls him, behold, the man. They bring a charge that carries no weight to it because Jesus is indeed the Son of God. What we see in all of this is that Jesus is being presented as truly righteous. And not only that, he's being presented as the righteous man Pilate doesn't realize the significance of his words when he says, Behold the man. In in trying to present Jesus as weaker, he's actually presenting his qualifications to stand in our place. He does bleed. He can be beaten. He can be mocked and tortured and treated cruelly because he is a man. And ironically, in the same text, he's called the Son of God. 
But he's the man who can stand in our place. And so when Pilate says, behold the man, we see one who stands in the gap for mankind, taking the punishment that mankind deserves to take, the righteous one in the place of sinners. So we see this secondly about our king today. Though he is truly righteous, he takes the punishment of mankind. Jesus, the man, stands in our place With no sin, he takes our sin upon himself. I was looking up uh, prison records. It's a strange Google search, but uh, I thought it'd be interesting to find out who had the longest innocent imprisonment in the United States. And I came across a man named Richard Phillips who had been imprisoned for 46 years, having not committed the crime for which he was imprisoned. So over the course of time uh, and the improvement of, you know, DNA testing and so on and so forth, they were able to eventually prove uh, that he was innocent. He had not committed the crime. Forty-six years he was in prison. Now, what's interesting is that we look at him as an innocent man having been wrongly imprisoned. And indeed, it's true. He was imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. But as I read more about the trial and about the circumstances surrounding the charge and so on and so forth, he had indeed committed a crime that he hadn't been condemned for. And in fact, he was present the same night with the one who committed the crime, and they had sort of planned it together. It was that the friend testified first and blamed him rather than the other way around. And so, indeed, he was present at the crime. He was one of the co-conspirators. He had, in fact, committed a different crime. And so, was he really innocent? Yes, he was imprisoned for the wrong crime. But he was certainly a part of what had happened. See, this is what's interesting about our assessment of guilt and innocence. We have court systems that can indeed declare a person guilty or not guilty or innocent and different charges that fall to them. And this is, of course, all by God's design, what governments are intended to do. What we have to understand is that when Jesus stands in our place as the truly innocent one, he is truly innocent. See, nobody's ever been declared innocent by a court who was actually truly innocent. Yes, maybe innocent of the specific crime they're talking about, but is anyone truly innocent? The answer is only one. This man, Jesus. And there he stands, the man in place of mankind, without any sin, taking the place of sinners. Romans 5.19 says this, For by one man's disobedience, that is, Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, that is, Jesus, many will be made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We all sinned in Adam, and Jesus is the one who obeyed. He's the righteous one. He alone can take our punishment Behold the man who stands in the place of humanity. The innocent one taking upon himself the punishment of mankind. As a man, Jesus could take our place and bear the sins that we've committed. Everything we do apart from God, in fact, is filthy. Before Jesus, we're told in Scripture that we're slaves to ourselves. We can't serve God until we're born again and alive to God, as Romans 6 puts it. So whenever we act in our flesh, which is all we can do before salvation, we sin. These are the very things Jesus bore to the cross, the innocent one taking our place. The wonderful thing is that Jesus knew what he would have to bear. He knows all things. And as he talked with the Father about the cup that he would drink, he knew what was in that cup. That cup was filled with the wrath of God for my sin and for your sins. And we know that Jesus drank every last drop. He took the punishment instead of us. Every lie, every lustful look, every bitter thought, every worry... 
every fear, every angry action, every harsh word, every jealous comparison, every facade of hypocrisy, every act of favoritism, every judgment, every injustice, every time you fall short of God's perfect glory, Jesus took it on himself and stood in your place. Knowing everything you've done and will do, Jesus stepped forward and took your place. And so we worship him as the righteous one who stands in the place of mankind. The scene continues and more of this irony begins to unfold. Verse 7 sort of serves as a transition point. The Jews reference Jesus as the Son of God and this sort of shocks Pilate in verse 8. When Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, which reveals to us he's already a little bit afraid, but now he hears that Jesus is the Son of God. Now understand the likely perspective that Pilate's coming from. As a Roman, he's probably coming from a polytheistic context. And we don't know exactly what Pilate believed, but he certainly doesn't believe in the the one God of Israel. And so he probably has some belief in, in a variety of deities. And so to hear now from the chief priest that this one claimed to be the son of God, from Pilate's perspective, he's probably thinking, well, that's actually possible. Probably according to his belief system, that could be true. That this Pilate is some, or that Jesus is some descendant of one of the divine beings out there. Again, this is all not true, but from Pilate's perspective, try to understand what's going on. And so Pilate's thinking, wait a second, he claimed to be like descended from the divine? I need to think about this. Pilate probably had some superstitious practices, which are very common in Roman times. And so he's probably thinking, we need to get this figured out. And so his question in verse 9 is really interesting. Pilate leaves the outer area and now walks back into Jesus. And it's sort of this like awkward moment where he's like, uh, where did you say you were from? <laughs> He's been talking with Jesus, and the identity of Jesus has been a big topic of conversation. Jesus has already hinted at the fact that his kingdom is not of this world. It's from another place, and Jesus is sort of unfolding the reality that, indeed, Jesus is from another realm. I think Pilate is sort of wondering, Might there be anything true to these claims that Jesus is making? Where are you from? Now here, Jesus doesn't answer him. There's silence. And so this question of power begins to arise again. Who's really in charge? Where are you from? Pilate's afraid. He's the one who's scared. He's now asking the questions to Jesus, and Jesus makes the choice to be silent, already having revealed that he's not from this world. Now, Pilate, sensing that his authority is in question, has to show Jesus that he does have some power here. And so, in verse 10, Pilate throws his weight around a little bit and says to Jesus, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Notice the repetition of the word power. It's the same word for the word authority. So Pilate's kind of throwing his weight around. Okay, well, I've got power. You you don't answer me. I, I have authority to crucify you or to release you. So he tries to wield his power against Jesus, but Jesus, the one in control here, begins to unfold to Pilate how things actually work. He says in verse 11, You would have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. A couple key things to notice about Jesus' explanation here. First is that there is such a thing as derived power from God, derived authority, and that God has imbued governments and parents, and the list could go on, but a variety of authorities in our lives. And there's no such thing as true authority unless it first comes from God. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. He says to Pilate, look, you'd have no authority at all against me unless it is derived authority, authority given to you from God the Father, from above. So again, Jesus is hinting at the answer to Pilate's earlier question, where are you from? 
you would have no power unless it was given from above. Here we have the answer to the question. Jesus is the one really in charge here. He's the one in control. The other thing we want to notice is that he implies that what Pilate is doing with his power is sin. And that there's someone else who's also committed sin. Now the question is, is he referring to Judas or the chief priest? The one who delivered me to you. Is he talking about Judas or the chief priest? Well, the ones who directly delivered him to, uh, to Pilate were the chief priests. Now, Judas is certainly culpable too, having delivered Jesus to the chief priests. But here I think he's referencing maybe even Caiaphas specifically, the high priest of that time, having handed him over now to a different authority, to Rome. So here's Caiaphas and the chief priests with derived authority. Here's Pilate with derived authority, and they're all using it to sin, to work against God. To, in fact, reject Jesus, the the very Son of God. The point is that Jesus is the one with the real power, and He's using it to please the Father, while the chief priests and Pilate use their derived authority to disobey, to sin, to work against God. There's a bit of an ironic statement at the beginning of verse 12. After Pilate shows his, this move of power to Jesus, I have power to crucify you or to release you. Verse 12 sort of reveals, well, maybe he doesn't quite have as much power as he thinks. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. <laughs> so Pilate's trying to release Jesus and failing so much for power. The one who has just declared his power to crucify or release Jesus can't even release Jesus in face of the chief priests who demand his crucifixion. Jesus is the one with all authority, as John 3.35 reminds us. The Father has entrusted all things into his hands. He's the one who uses that authority always to please the Father, as John 8.29 reminds us. He says, I always do those things that please him. With His true power, Jesus pleases the Father. As those with derived power use it to work against God, Jesus uses His true power to please the Father. And this is the third thing we see about Jesus as the true King here. He's being revealed as the one with the the true authority, and He's using it the right way. Maybe you can remember watching The Wizard of Oz, right? following the yellow brick road on their way to uh, this great wizard who has the power to fix all their problems, right? Well, they they come to the wizard and and Dorothy and her comrades stand there before him and there's this vast display of power, right? There's smoke and lights and a booming voice and all of these things going on. Wow, this must be some powerful wizard. Well, there's a small little character we've forgotten about, the little dog Toto. Do you remember what Toto does? Toto walks up to the curtain hiding the mighty wizard and sort of grabs at it, and all of a sudden the curtain falls down, and there revealed is sort of an older man with very little power at all, just trying to make himself sound big and strong, and everyone's sort of disappointed. Oh, this is the powerful wizard? (laughs) as weak little Toto reveals he has no true strength at all. But in this battle of power between Jesus and Pilate, what comes to the surface is that Jesus is the one with true power from above as the Son of God, and He uses that power to do the right thing, to go to the cross, to please His Father, as the ones with derived power do the wrong thing. And work against God the Father. We ourselves don't really have power, but we often try to prove we do. We throw our identity or experiences around. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done or what I could do to you? Try to make ourselves bigger and stronger. We even begin to see others as power figures We look to the successful and the attractive and the strong, and we want to connect with them. Networking, we call it, so that we can get on their good side and have more power, too, as a part of our power plays. 
We're drawn to the powerful, not to the weak or needy. Then when we have power, whether that's true derived authority from God or just power we've collected for ourselves as we've sought to put others down, we end up using it to serve ourselves rather than serving our Father in heaven. We try to wield our power to our own ends. Well, you better listen to my advice. Do you know what I've accomplished? You better obey me or I'll get really angry. We raise our voices, we escalate our words, all trying to accomplish what we want, not using what little power we have to please the Father. And in the end, we don't have any power of ourselves. There's no authority that comes from us. It's all derived from our Father in heaven. We use our fake power for our own agendas. We use our strength in the end to trample Jesus. But here, the one with all the power pleases the Father, and goes to the cross for the powerless, even for those who wield their power against Him, Jesus steps forward and says, I will do what pleases the Father. I will die for you. This is how Jesus uses His strength. As we come to the final scene, Pilate makes a further attempt to release Jesus in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the chief priests sort of raised the volume of what they're saying. They realized that their charge of blasphemy doesn't really land well with Pilate. Uh, Pilate just seemed to be scared by that and maybe want to release Jesus all the more. So now they come with a different charge. It's pretty smart, if you think about it. What's valuable to Pilate, they begin to think? Well, his power. Where does his power come from? Ah, from Rome, but specifically from Caesar. Caesar appointed him. Caesar could fire him. And so the chief priests allude to Caesar. They point out to Pilate that if Pilate aligns himself with this one who claims to be king, then Pilate can't be a friend of Caesar because any king must be in competition with Pilate. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar, they say. And Pilate hears this and thinks about it and realizes, oh, well, they actually might be right. And so he is ready to make his declaration. Verse 13 continues this coronation scene, this pronouncement of the king. Pilate hears them attack uh, this connection with Jesus as king, and and that might be working against Caesar, and I I think that gets him thinking along these lines, okay, well, if we're going to move forward with this, we've got to move forward with this with Jesus as king. And so now he's ready to make his declaration. Now, if you remember, verse 13 sets up the scene for us. Pilate uh, takes Jesus out And so now they're out in the outer area. The chief priests are in view. They're outside the inner praetorium. There's a judgment seat there. And in these trials, when Pilate would sort of rule in place of Rome, this judgment seat was the place that he would sit to give his verdict. Okay, So this is setting up the end of the courtroom scene. The verdict is about to come. What will Pilate decide? And so the reader is to be waiting with bated breath and sort of on the edge of our seats as we await the decision of Pilate. He sits in his judgment seat. John points out to us that this area is called the pavement, probably referring to some flat stones that had been placed together to form a landing area where this seat was located. In Hebrew, it's called Gabbatha, which means the hill. So this is a raised up area. This is a high zone. The stones are laid out there. There's the judgment seat and Pilate sitting on it, ready to give his verdict. And so we're all waiting to hear what the verdict is. And then John gives us verse 14. John gives us this little aside. Here we all are waiting for the verdict. And in the beginning of verse 14, notice what John does. He says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour. Do you catch what's going on here? It's like a pause in the action. And so here's Pilate sitting down on the judgment seat, and there's Jesus in his crown and robes, and there's the chief priest waiting for the verdict. And then from off stage, we hear John's voice, Now 
It was the preparation day, about the sixth. Okay, well, it didn't actually happen that way, you understand. But this is what he's doing with his writing here. This is a little aside in the midst of the drama before we hear the verdict. Why? Why does John point this out? We need to understand what the preparation day was. The readers would have understood, so we too need to understand. Now remember, what feast is going on as they prepare all of this? Passover. The Passover meal would, for most of them, have taken place on Friday night, and this is Friday morning. And so this is what's called the preparation day, the time before sundown when Passover would begin. So what are they doing all day Friday? They're preparing, hence the creative name, preparation day. They're preparing for Passover. But why then does he point out the sixth hour? Well, Depends exactly on how John was tracking time. Some count from midnight, and so they count the hours from there, which would make the sixth hour 6 a.m. That's unlikely. It's more likely that John's counting from sunrise, which would make the sixth hour about noon. And they usually track things in about three-hour periods, you know, so they're just kind of going off of shadows and so forth, so it wasn't exactly like it was 10.05 a.m. No, it's about the sixth hour. The sixth hour was the time of day when people were supposed to take their Passover lamb to the temple to be sacrificed on preparation day. Because remember, in the Passover ritual, they were remembering what God did in Egypt when He instructed the people to kill that lamb without blemish and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorposts. And then later that night, they would eat that lamb for dinner as a way of remembering God's provision. And from then forward, Passover on a yearly basis was celebrated to remember what God had done in redeeming his people from oppression by the blood of a lamb. And they would eat the meal with that lamb in order to remember how God had provided salvation through a lamb. And it's the time to prepare the lamb. And that's what John points out as we wait for Pilate's verdict. Pilate sits on his judgment seat, and in the second half of verse 14, we we hear his words. His pronouncement is this, Behold your king. Now, wait a second. This doesn't sound like a trial pronouncement. Isn't it usually like guilty or not guilty or innocent? What happens here is that our trial has turned in to a king's crowning. (laughs) What should have been either guilty or innocent or not guilty or whatever, Pilate in his pronouncement from the judgment seat says the truest words he's probably ever spoken from that judgment seat in his life, Behold your king. And now, indeed, the king is presented to the chief priests, the true king of Israel. And it takes a Roman leader to tell them, here he is. That's his verdict. He's the king. And the irony of a Roman authority having to tell the chief priests in this judicial verdict, which becomes a kingly pronouncement, that indeed, Jesus is the king. The chief priests won't have it. They cry out to him in verse 15, Away with him, away with him, which is to say, Get him out of our sight. We can't even look upon him. Crucify him. And so they call for Jesus to be taken away. If the reader didn't catch it, if Pilate wasn't clear enough, he says it one more time. Shall I crucify your king? (laughs) Indeed, that's what they want. The final words of the chief priests in the entire Gospel of John come at the end of verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. Now the religious leaders of Israel are left echoing through the Gospel saying, We have no king but Caesar. The religious leaders of Israel have become Romans in this moment. They have not only denied Jesus, but according to the Old Testament, they denied God, who was always their king. 
In fact, committing the crime of blasphemy, the very crime for which Jesus goes to the cross, their blasphemy falls on him as they reject God. And Jesus goes to the cross for the very chief priests who now reject Israel and become Romans, denying their true King Jesus as the Roman authority reminds them he really is your king. (laughs) You see all that's going on here? As the true king goes to the cross as the Lamb of God. On the preparation day, when the Passover lambs were being prepared, Jesus makes his way to the cross to once again and once and for all save his people from their oppression. With true justice, he goes to the cross as the sacrificial Lamb of God. This is why he's the true king. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This doesn't surprise the reader. John the Baptist announced it to us at the beginning of the book. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, here on the preparation day, the King, the Lamb, goes to the cross. And He does it in true justice. We cry for justice all the time. We want to punish people when they wrong us. We call for judgment from God upon others. But when we do that, we actually call for judgment upon ourselves, for we too are sinners. He's the judge. For that reason, He goes to the cross. He knows the only way to save the world is for the righteous Lamb of God to pay for the sins of the world. The seat from which Pilate makes the declaration, Behold your king, is called the Bema seat. You may recognize that term because there's a true Bema seat from which Jesus will judge. As the true judge of the world, (laughs) Pilate actually got it right in this judgment, but Jesus always gets it right. He reigns with true justice. And he will one day come again and establish that justice on the earth. But in this coming, he upholds that justice by going to the cross for sinners. He takes the sins of the world upon his shoulders and becomes the Lamb of God who was slain to pay for our sins. And this is why in the book of Revelation, like we sang in the last song today, he's the one who's called worthy to pour out God's justice because he's the Lamb who was slain for sinners. Because with his blood, he redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and nation that we would all be gathered before his throne to worship him forevermore. He's worthy because he's the Lamb who was was slain. He upholds the justice of God because he did what was necessary to pay for the sins of the world. That's our king. This is the one we worship and love. We know in scripture without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin and so friend I urge you to come to the one who shed his blood for you. The righteous one. The just one the honorable one, the true king who took your place on the way to the cross. As we close and think about what it means then to worship Jesus, the true king who died for us, I want to make just a couple final applications. Maybe that you're here today and worship needs to begin in your life by believing the gospel understand what we read in this text is part of the crux of human history. When the Son of Man is lifted up to die in your place, Jesus stepped forward to the cross and bore not only the sins of the chief priests and Pilate and those who mocked him, but he bore my sins and your sins. And friend, he invites you to trust in him as Savior to be cleansed of your sin, to be given His righteousness, to exchange robes with Christ so that you too can become a worshiper of God and not only worship Him in this life, but be there to worship Him in His future kingdom as well. Forevermore to call out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain for you and for me. If you've trusted in Christ to save you, then maybe for you today the application is to begin living the gospel. 
You see, the, the recognition that Jesus died in my place changes the way we view everything. I begin every day by rehearsing the fact that Jesus died for me. I, I can start every day thankful because I deserved what I just read here in John 19. That should have been me. And so my day starts pretty good compared to that. So we start with gratitude. Lord, thank you that I I didn't go through that. That Christ took my place. Living the gospel means that then through my day, I live for Jesus because he died for me. It's not my life anymore, but there's one who died for me, therefore I ought to live for him. And so our lives become a living sacrifice, as Paul calls them, laid out for him. So our decisions of the day basically boil down to, what do you want me to do for you next, Lord Jesus? You gave your life for me, and I'm thankful, and I'll do, I'll do anything for you. But the gospel doesn't infiltrate just those decisions in the course of our lives. It infiltrates even the way we treat other people. We begin to treat others the way Jesus treated me. And so, like Paul, we forgive because God in Christ forgave you. We show patience and we bear with one another because God has been patient with us. We begin to treat others the way Jesus has treated us. This is our gospel testimony. It's all part of our worship. How we praise the one, the true king, who died for us and rose again. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. We worship him today. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Oh, and Father, we ask that you would send your Son again to come and to reign as the worthy Lamb to open the scrolls of your judgment that your glory and righteousness and kingdom would be seen, would be visible, and would be worshipped forevermore. We praise you for your kindness to us, the patience that now in this age gives us opportunity to come to Christ for salvation, that we, the bride of Christ, the church, were left here as the body of Christ to be a light in the darkness, calling sinners to come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, to gather worshipers of the true King. Lord, help us in our task. We worship you We praise you for what you've done in Jesus. Help us to live for his glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.